Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Wednesday edition of the Donaldson Files. I've got uh, Jennifer Cabrera, who I will introduce shortly in a few minutes. Uh, and also tonight on the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom, we got another great show. we got Ambassador James Gilmore, followed by the former Speaker of the House, James uh, Robert Livingston. And we're going to be talking Biden foreign policy and politics in general and their view of what's going down. But first, we're going to start off with uh, – now, kind of a nice discussion. We're going to start off with some – what I'm going to say, putting everything in context, I've been spending the last year and a half essentially trying to put data in the COVID virus in context. And there have been times I've been accused of minimizing the virus. And and I want to kind of make it clear is this. You know, you know there have been certain things I've stated Last April and May, that stood the test of time for the infectious fatality rate, the impact of the pandemic, uh, you know, the side effects dealing with education, the, edu- the lack of education, that impact. Or as a good friend of mine said, if you ever wanted to create inequality as a policy to basically widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots, you couldn't have done a better job and the policy that many governors and now what's being done by this present administration dealing with the coronavirus. From shutting businesses businesses down, basically cutting off education, which has hurt the minorities far greater and those at the bottom far greater. Uh, you name it, they've done it. Increased suicide, increased drug overdoses, uh, lack of, you know, follow-up on chronic diseases, lack of screenings that could detail, you know, that could detect uh, diseases in advance, so on down the line. And and I made the contention that there's a lot of data out there, you're being told, that quite frankly doesn't pass the muster. One of those things and you're going to hear a lot more of this down the road. You're already hearing it. You're, that the number of coronavirus we have are underestimating the number, which I find to be incredulous since these are the same group of people that basically have depended upon models that have been wrong by as much as a factor of 10. I would make the argument we're probably underestimating. We don't know how, but how much. And I'm joined in this by numbers of people uh, I know Justin Hart of Rational Ground has detailed this. Kevin Roach, uh, the healthy skeptic, has you know, detailed this, and others have detailed this. But I'm going to begin, and I brought Jennifer Cabrera on, on 
because a, a few months ago, oh, well, I guess it was about a year ago, she did something unusual. I mean, she actually, she and her husband looked at autopsy reports in a county, in one of the counties of Florida, to kind of see, you know, dealing with the COVID, you know, whether a death of COVID or a death with COVID. And being that most of these conditions tend to have multiple conditions, underlying conditions, it's quite hard. How do you de- determine what kills an individual, especially if they have underlying conditions? And they were one of the first groups to do it. And the reason I brought her on because Justin Hart, her associate of Rational Ground, uh, basically put you know put you know, this research back on her timeline about yesterday. So I thought to myself, okay, we got to have you know Jennifer back to see if she's done any updates or her thoughts and where she's at. And and first of all, I want to introduce uh, Jennifer. Why don't you kind of tell us uh, everybody something about yourself? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, Jennifer Cabrera. I am the editor of electrochronicle.com, which is a local news site. It's an independent local news site, and um, I am an editor at rationalground.com, which is Justin Hart's organization. And the way this happened is that we focus at Electoral Chronicle on local news, but when our county started imposing COVID restrictions, we started doing research. And so we became known pretty quickly for our anti-lockdown, anti-mask, um, stance, all of which was backed with research, which we all, in every every article, we link to the studies that we're citing. It's all very, very carefully researched. But, of course, we were quickly um, pigeonholed as kooks because that's how it happens. And um, But anyway, we did get um, the attention of some people who thought it might be useful to have death certificates looked at. So to be clear, these weren't autopsy reports. They were death certificates. Um, which do not have nearly as much, not nearly as much information as an autopsy report. Um, but anyway, so we did get access to, um, I guess all, there were probably 15,000 maybe death certificates at the time that we were able to look at them. And basically they just uh, rolled in stacks of paper and said, go to it. And uh, we weren't allowed to make copies of anything. We had to take notes and, um, they weren't organized in any way, and we had a few hours, and that's it. So we had to kind of figure out what we wanted to do with them. We just took a stack um, that appeared. So this was in late October 2020. We, so we took a stack that appeared to be mostly uh, from September. Um, they were heavily, heavily redacted. Um, we could see the gender, but we couldn't even see the county, for example. Um, so we have no way of knowing if these were actually representative. They're just about 700 that we flipped through out of a total of about 15,000. Okay, so ba- yeah. So basically, I mean, the death certificates, first of all, I mean, uh, there isn't a, okay, kind of explain to the audience, you know, what you have to go through dealing with COVID, because it's like, a, if I'm understanding this, there's like a two parts to this, part one and part two. So could you kind of explain when you're looking at it, what you're looking at, part one and what part two is? Sure. So there are you know, basic procedures that uh, that are put out for doctors who fill out death certificates, and the the rule is that the final cause of death, the the you know the 
final contributing cause to death goes on line A, uh, part one, line A, and basically it works up. So, for example, in, in COVID, you would see, for example, line C would be COVID-19, line B would be pneumonia, and then line one would be acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. So that would be the, you know, that, that ARDS would be the final um, the final cause, right? And so it's supposed to go in that kind of reverse order where, so 1A is the final cause of death. And then part two is not underlying cause of death, so, uh, but underlying cause of death. So other comorbidities, they'll typically list high blood pressure, diabetes, that kind of thing in part two. And so that's how the death certificates work. But the CDC, so, so what's happening now is these are all filled out at the hospital, but um, the CDC says if there's COVID anywhere on the death certificate, if it's even suspected to have caused any kind of contributory whatever, put it on there. Um, so if it's on there anywhere, it's a COVID death. And that's just how this has worked. And it's you know straight down for the CDC. They just want to be sure they catch them all originally. Originally, this was supposed to be, oh, you know, just a little outbreak, we want to be sure to see where it's popping up, make sure you catch COVID if it was anywhere. And instead, it's become a way of inflating the numbers. Um, on top of that, okay. Medicare, yes. Okay. So let me, yeah, okay, I'll get right back in a minute because that's a, an important point you're about to bring up here. Uh, I tell you what, we're going to come to a quick break, uh, and then I want you to kind of, uh, you know, follow up. Uh, on the points you're making post because you're about to make an interesting point on the Medicare. So I want to make sure that people don't lose that point at all. This is Tom Donaldson with Jennifer Cabrera here on the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? One in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Well, back, ladies and gentlemen, here at the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. And don't forget, you can listen to this show every day, bachelornews.airtime.pro. That's bachelornews.airtime.pro. You can listen to this show twice a day at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Central, or 4 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. You know, 
3 p.m. Central. I, I just I just said that. Okay. And 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central uh, every day. We're also on StreamYard.com. Tune in at iTunes as well. And and so and don't forget to, the show tonight is following us at the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom, yours truly. So stay tuned because it's going to be a dynamite show like the show we got right now. Another great dynamite show. Okay. You are about to make a point, and I, meant, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but there, I think this is a very vital point that on Medicare and payment to hospitals. Uh, go ahead. Yes. So, so the CARES Act um, directed the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to increase the what they call the waiting factor, but it's essentially the payment for by 20%. When an individual is diagnosed with COVID-19 and discharged within the public health emergency period, well, that public health emergency started in March 2020 and is still going on at least through January 2022. Um, So anybody that a hospital discharges in that period that they can get a COVID-19 positive test, they get a 20% bonus in in the payment. And um, I'm pretty sure that the insurance companies have, um, you know, have also picked up on this. It's not just Medicare and Medicaid, but even if it's not, the vast majority of people who are hospitalized for COVID are 65 or older and are um, on Medicare. So, so you've got a, a lot of incentives um, going on here. So clearly hospitals are incentivized to, I, I, from my own, my father's personal experience in the hospital, I can tell you they test frequently. It's not enough to come in and be negative for COVID. They keep testing um, because if they can get that test, they can get it that 20% bonus. And so I believe it, it, what I read on the death certificates told me that at least some doctors are being told to make sure COVID's on the death certificate if they ever got a positive test. I don't know whether that's um, because Maybe they're, they, it, that justifies it. You know, maybe if, um, if Medicare comes back and they say, hey, you know, we, we see this death certificate doesn't say COVID, but you're charging us the 20% bonus. Why? So maybe it's just a, a, a consistency. Their question, they can say, look, it's on the death certificate and it's in the medical record, you know, consistency everywhere. I don't know. It's very hard to get answers to, to that sort of question. But the, the wording I saw on some of these death certificates told me that that's going on, that there's pressure to, to make sure it's on the death certificate. So we, we went through a bunch of these and, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't mean, go ahead. Keep going. So, so what we found, the, the, the top level of what we found um, was that about 15% of the death certificates just said COVID-19. I mean, literally nothing else on the death certificate. Uh, not pneumonia, not ARDS, not anything else. Not Because you don't die of COVID, you die of complications from COVID. And that's after it progresses to pneumonia, et cetera. So the fact, and, and also most of these patients were elderly, the chance of an elderly person not having any other contributing factors is very, very slim. So I don't know if these were hospitals that were busy and they didn't just fill them out, although I really don't know. Um, but so you have... About 15% of them just said COVID-19, no other information. Um, about a third of the ones we looked at 
um, we call them interesting just because when you looked at them, keep in mind we're looking at these things one after another, one after another, and most of them, about half of them, COVID-19, yep, COVID-19, I mean, just very straightforward. They, they, they looked exactly like you would expect them to look. And the other half, like it's, um, about a third of the total, we looked at it and I went, there's a serious question here about whether COVID was the final factor in this death. So about a third of them was, was what we found was, um, and, and five of those were classified as accidents. So that kind of tells you something right there. The classified as an accident, COVID was probably not the final cause of death. Um, we also found yeah. that um, over half, go ahead. Okay, so the question, yeah, the, the, because I think I remember reading a story, and I'm not sure if it's Florida, where a young person had COVID and died in a motorcycle accident, and they <laughs> and it was counted as COVID. Yeah, did you run across yeah, anything like that? Yeah, and that one, well, and not in these, but um, like I said, five are classified as accidents. One of them um, said that it was a, uh, that the, the cause was uh, a blunt force injury of something was the final, was the final, um, the cause, right? And another one was uh, left femoral neck, neck and pelvic fracture from a fall, right? So, and certainly some of the ones we saw in our local, so early on we were able to get uh, medical examiner records, but around August 2020, the state of Florida decided those were no longer public records. So we weren't able to, but before that we saw some falls in there. We saw, that's where we saw um, somebody else saw the motorcycle accident. Um, we saw one, it was really interesting, it was a young man, 30, 30, 33, something like that, who was working on a roof, was struck by lightning and fell off the roof and died the next day. But I guess when he got to the hospital, he tested positive for COVID, so he was counted as a COVID death. Um, so that's the kind of thing we saw. But, you know, what we saw, the ones that we saw that were interesting where things like, and this is where I say that the doctors seem to be under some pressure. One of them wrote, asymptomatic positive COVID-19 swab. So way down in part B. So this is telling me that the doctor is telling me that there is nothing, um, that this had nothing to do with the death. But they are, there was some pressure to put that on there. Um, the death, the, this was actually a 57-year-old male who the the only thing in part one was coronary artery disease. And then in part two, they put asymptomatic COVID-19 positive swab. That tells me a story that this is a person who died of a, you know, a heart problem. And then along the way, they got an asymptomatic positive test. But that's a COVID death in Florida. This was everything in the pile that was given us was it counted as a COVID death. Another one said COVID-19 six months ago. Well, again, this is where CDC has 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 a broader definition because WHO specifically says you don't count it as a COVID death if there has been a period of recovery between COVID and whatever kills the person, but we do count them if there's a period of recovery. So there was one that we found that said COVID-19 six months ago, way down in part B. So this is clearly, again, a doctor who doesn't believe that the COVID was a problem, but they counted it. Again, it's counted as a COVID-19 death. Um, about okay. one thing that really good. Yeah, okay, I want to because here's what you're. If I'm getting this, you know, correctly, because what you were saying about a third of these, you could look at it and not necessarily say 
you know, there are so many causes you could almost attribute. So, you know, would that be a fair? You're not necessarily saying they're not COVID yet, but you're simply saying, boy, you you got three a whole bunch of factors in here, and the doctor seems to be indicating through his verbiage that it may not be COVID, but it's there on this certificate, and. And does that get counted as a COVID? So when I read the CDC statistics, you know, Florida has uh, X percent of COVID. That would is that being counted as a COVID death? And these and they're all counted. What we read every day. Okay. So yeah, they're all counted. So they're all counted. They're... Yeah. So what you're saying to me is it could be like this: the doctor is an asymptomatic COVID. That would be counted statistically. And what we are reading for the CDC, what we're reading presently the CDC as a COVID death. Yeah, they all count. Is that how I, when I read. A, per, a person who CDC, dies of COVID on, yeah, a person who dies of COVID on a ventilator counts exactly the same as somebody who dies from injuries from a fall and gets a, a positive COVID test at some point along the way. Count the same. So. So basically, when I sit back and look, 50,000 people die in the state of Florida. You know, it could be a, you know, and we'll, you know, and you're saying the possibility, you're not saying it is, but the possibility, it could be as high as a third of these patients may not necessarily been COVID. They were under underlying diseases that may have killed the patient. It's hard to really determine well, or, what it or is. Or primary primary diseases. I, so, so let me look at this one. A 60-year-old male. Here's what's in part one. He was A, the final cause of death, septic shock for days. B, urinary tract infection with E. coli bacterium. C, gastrointestinal bleed, acute blood loss. D, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Okay, then part two, hypertension, history of COVID. COVID didn't kill this person. This was a bacterial UTI infection and a gastrointestinal bleed leading to septic shock. That's what killed the person. Somewhere along the way, they got a COVID test. And now, you don't have to, people other, say, yeah. oh, you're not a doctor. I, I'm not a doctor. I can read. Okay, but let's take this, let me follow this first. Because the, one of the problems, you know, that I've been hearing about PS, like some of these tests, like the PSR, is that you're not necessarily measuring whether the person's infectious. You're measuring whether or not the person's been exposed to a coronavirus, depending on the number of cycles that they are using. Correct? Correct. The test is very, very sensitive. And the result of that is that if you're symptomatic, if you, if you have symptoms that match COVID and you do a PCR test, it's probably going to be pretty accurate. It's going to tell you because if you're going to, if you're symptomatic with COVID, it's going to be, it's not going to take very many cycles to say, yep, this is COVID, right? But if you're not symptomatic, you're just walking around and you're breathing, especially in a hospital where there's COVID in the air and you might have some fragments of COVID in your nose, the PCR test will pick up those fragments and duplicate them until there's enough because we're doing, we're going so many duplication cycles that those fragments end up being called a COVID infection when it's not, if you're asymptomatic, these tests are not very accurate. 
And that's what we're getting in a hospital. You've got people who are in there for other reasons. They're getting tests every day. Just the fact that a certain percentage of those are always going to be false positives means that you're getting some of these, not only false positives just from the process itself, but from the, the having fragments of COVID in your, in your nose. Because if you're symptomatic, it's, it's fine. That's why flu tests, for example, are PCR also, right? But we don't worry about that because you don't test people for flu unless they come in and they're like really sick and they're like, oh, I have all the symptoms of flu. And then you test them. So that's not how we're doing COVID. We're testing people who don't have COVID symptoms. And now, now the errors yeah. become magnified. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, 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 I want to, because I've made this point in my show before. And again, you know, we'll, they'll get more into the numbers here. And, you know, cause I've heard different people say to me, it's their estimate. You know, I've talked to Kevin Roach. I don't know if you've ever, you know, if you read his healthy skeptic, Kevin Roach, if you're familiar with it, uh, it's a dynamite. I think I have, right but not, but not often. Yeah, yeah. I do it every day. I mean, it's like every day, but this guy's got, and we got talking. You know, and then he was thinking, yeah, it could be, you know, 20, 25 percent. You know, he was guessing. He said it's more of a guesswork, but based on, you know, look. And you're saying a third. You know, let's just take those statistics alone. You know, you know, you know what you're talking about is, you're talking essentially out of the 650,000 of been looking at COVID, the died of COVID, we may be looking at 150 to 250,000 deaths, not necessarily COVID. I still leave 400,000 plus. That's still serious. But, and we're going to follow up on this point. And my view is we, you know, if we're going to be basing policy, and that's what we're doing, we're basing policy on these, on these data, then we better make sure we get the data accurate, and we're not going to get the data accurate. We're going to come up with bad policy, and I'll let you follow up with that as soon as we get back to this break. I'm Tom Donaldson, Donaldson File, with Jennifer Cabrera here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? <laughs> of course. I, I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> wow, Jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. <laughs> oh, yeah? yeah? Pretty obvious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. And don't forget, tomorrow night, Thursday night, here on this network, uh, the Bachelor News Radio Show. If you want to discuss some politics, social issues, racial issues, other topics, uh, tune in to the Bachelor News Radio Network 
and listen live every Monday and Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. on Block Talk Radio. And if you miss the show, you can listen to the show daily on the Pro. And don't forget, our show is every day, 4 p.m. Central Time, 11 a.m. No, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Pro. And we're also on StreamYard.com. Specify, anchor, and tune in. Those shows as well. So, so many ways to listen to this show. And we're back with uh, Jennifer. Okay. And I want to kind of, this is what bothered I me. Mean, this is why I, you know, I kind of been harping on a lot of the data over the past several years. And, and, uh, and I've been, it mainly because if we're going to do the policy, and if you don't have the right data, you're going to come up with bad policy. I've seen a whole lot of bad data that over the past year and a half has been passed on for justification for every for the extreme lockdowns, the economic restrictions, mass mandates, you name it. And and I think this is another example where we're not even trying to get the numbers right, you know, because you know, what you're telling me and what others are telling me is is that we're, I mean, we're basically incentivizing people to overestimate the number of coronavirus. And again, I want people to understand, we're still talking, even when you and I are our numbers, and whatever numbers we believe in, we're still talking hundreds of thousands of people death. So we're not minimizing the virus, but we're certainly, we'll let, you know, it'll be nice to have correct data if we're going to be based in policy. Your thoughts? Absolutely. Um, we need a realistic uh, accounting of, of what's going on. And, and the same thing applies, the same exact thing applies to hospitalizations. We know from, and fortunately, some articles are starting to get written, but probably 40%, if not more, of, of COVID hospitalizations are for other reasons, and they just have a positive COVID test while they're in the hospital. For children, it's even higher. It's over 50% for children are non-COVID. You know, they're, they're in the hospital for a different reason. And so all of these things are used, like you said, to drive policy when we're not, we're not identifying what's actually going on. And, and one example, and I think um, you guys are going to start seeing this in, in northern areas, and I, it's hitting the Midwest and the West Coast particularly right now, is that we're had, the whole world is seeing um, out-of-season RSV spikes in, in children. And RSV is most serious in children from about zero to four years old. And so they come into the hospital with these respiratory virus symptoms. Um, some of them test positive for both RSV and COVID. Again, you know, it's kind of, sometimes it's hard to tell which is the primary, but in a child that young, it's probably RSV's primary illness. And these RSV waves are getting, are filling up hospitals, pediatric units, and then it's being used to mask children because they're being called pediatric COVID hospitalizations. Again, we're just not identifying the underlying cause of what's going on, and everything is now covered. Well, I'm going to ask you a question, because I've read, because I know exactly what you're talking about, because I, you know, you know, I've seen that study, uh, what you're talking about, and, and let me see if I can bring it up here, my little notes here, but uh, because these are actually two different viruses. To be honest with you, they are. Uh, they are. Yes, they are different viruses, and they have different 
uh, severity in children. So RSV is actually serious in children, and COVID is not. But what you end up with is they all get called COVID hospitalizations. And they're used to drive the panic that something terrible is happening in children. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, when we've know, always okay, dealt yeah, with you, RSV. Well, that's what it because there's like a study that was done a few years ago on you know, high mobility, mortality uh, associated with rhinoviruses. And they were even finding them in elderly patients. This was like three or four years ago. Uh, but, it, you know, again, if we're not going to get the right diagnosis, uh, either you're not going to be treating it correctly or, you know, because, again, I don't know what the treatment per se would be for, you know, rhinoviruses versus coronavirus or if there is any. But certainly. Yeah, I'm less uh, worried about hospital treatment and more worried about the messaging because I think that the doctors know what they're seeing in front of them. But with the message that comes out of the hospitals is, Pediatric units are filling up, right? That's what we are told, yeah. and, we're, and they're very they're very vague about why. It's it's always oh COVID, and so then everybody panics that oh suddenly it's more dangerous to, to children. No, we're having an out of season RSV wave, um, and the the South has already gone through it, and it happened like at the same time as our COVID wave, mm-hmm. and it's 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 increasing right now in in the upper Midwest and on the West Coast, and. You know, so keep an eye out for when you're, they say pediatric units are filling up. If you can find out what age, if those are ages zero to four, those are RSV, and some of the older ones are too. Well, I guess this is important because this is, yeah, I mean, you know, I have to be honest, I mean, you say, if you would have asked me four years ago, I was never a conspiracy guy, but I, you know, I got, you know, you know, you know, one time I got in a conversation recently. I said, "Sometimes I get this feeling we're living in Alex Jones's world, and every conspiracy tends to end up becoming true." But you know what they say: you know, the difference between a conspiracy theory and and truth is six months, right? Yeah, six months. I've read exactly, and and I think, like I said, because like I said, I find this to be fascinating. Because let's go back to what you just said with the hospitalization, uh, because. David Zag, I think, is the guy mm-hmm. who was, was saying, wrote a piece in The Atlantic. The first thing that struck me was it was published in The Atlantic, you know, which is a mainstream left-wing journal. And basically, he was quoting a VA study, and I know uh, where, you know, basically he was saying, in effect, you know, the most recent variants that have been coming, the most recent surges, about 48% had nothing to do with COVID. Or if you had somebody who just happened to have an asymptomatic case or mild case, and they came in for other reasons. And and even his point was, we can't use, how can we use this as a metric to determine what's going on if half of these patients are not truly impacted by COVID? And even before that, he noticed the thing, you know, that it was even a third. And I, and I don't, and I'm going to say this, and I don't want to make this connection, but I think one has to look, start thinking, well, if we're off in hospitalization by one-third to 50%, and I think there was another study in Lancet and British that was like, a, you know, 25%. If we're off by one every four to one every two with hospitalization, you know, how much are we off by death? Yeah, because one – Well, exactly, and, and, and keep in mind, keep in mind that there's a, a perception – that uh, 
deaths are counted if there was a positive COVID test in the past month or something like 30 days, 60 days, different things in different places. But that is not how it works for a hospitalized patient. And in a hospitalized patient, if they ever had COVID, it can end up on the death certificate and they get counted as a COVID death. And that's why you see things like uh, COVID six months ago, right? So there's, and this yeah. was in October, 2020, when that would have been, you know, April. Well, now we've got 18 months of time for people to, especially the elderly, to recover from COVID and then go back into the hospital for something else. Maybe they have a stroke, maybe they have a fall, but that COVID is still in the medical record and can still be put on a death certificate. Okay, let me pause, I'm going to pause this up because I love Ron DeSantis. I mean, it's, you, know, you know, I'm on Team DeSantis. If the Iowa caucus was held tomorrow, I'd be on Team DeSantis regardless. <laughs> But my question I'm going to ask of you, and certainly his people understand this, but if I'm a governor, I would almost be willing to look, go back and review this and say, you know what, I'm going to have, you know, here's what I'm reporting to the CDC. Here's what we're actually seeing. Have two sets of numbers at least. So that people can see that. I think that I, I, I think that's now that we have a new Surgeon General, I do think that's a possibility. Um, I yeah. I think that um, there's been a desire to do that, but a lack of people to step up and do it. The former Surgeon General wasn't interested. He was he was more along the you know let's let's keep people afraid so they behave um, point of view. But the new Surgeon General is not, so I think there's a chance we get that. I, I don't know, because I'm surprised. I mean, this is to me what I'd be doing right now if I ran a if I'm running a state right now. This is what I'd be doing. The other thing I'd be doing is identifying the cycles in which these PCR tests are being done. If you get tested positive or, like, for example, I've been tested three times, you know, uh, and one time it came back inconclusive. And so they basically said, well, that means you got, I'm thinking to myself, you know, and they basically said, treat yourself as in quarantine. I'm thinking to myself, like, really? I don't have a symptom? I don't feel anything? (laughs) And so I went back and tested two days later, and they came up negative. But I would be curious, you know, would, should states actually be doing And you know, Maybe let's put it this way. Would the new Surgeon General even put that on the list? Hey, we're going to put down these levels so that people understand that when they get tested, you know, that's what they could be seeing. So, your thoughts? So he could do – well, he can't change the the, the, the tests have – uh, licenses, you know, emergency use authorizations that specify the the cycle threshold. So they can't just change it. They can they can be asked to report it uh, to the patient to be used. But I think a more useful thing to do would be to to just get rid of asymptomatic testing. You know, limit the testing to people who are sick. And I, you know, now they're now the tests are much more uh, accurate, and you're only being used to check what what a sick person has, as opposed to just using them for screening of of asymptomatic people. That's that's what I would do. I'm not sure they can change the test, but they can change who gets tested. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. I mean, that's exactly right because that's the thing to me. Yeah, and and we're going to come on a quick break very shortly, but I really want to. You know, because this, you know, I, I want to contrast what we're doing with this and what we've done with past pandemics, because uh, I mean, some of what I see being done just doesn't make sense. 
in a real aspect of this. And so we'll just we'll talk about this one on the other side of the break. This is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files, here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me on 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Back here at the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. we got 20 minutes left. So if you want to call in, 646-929-0130, or if you want to just comment or have a question on Twitter, you can get so on at the Donaldson Files on Twitter right now. And uh, so we'll, you know, so we'll take your comments and put them on. Any questions you have? So we're ready to go, folks. And Jennifer will, ask, will answer any questions you have. And if you just want to call in and say, Tom and Jennifer, you guys are doing a great job. You're brilliant. Yeah, we'll take that, too, as well. Uh, all right. Okay. I'm going to go back. I'm going to make this point because you made a very interesting point, you know, because I'm looking right now. And, and we're going to talk about your Surgeon General, get into his, you know, to what he was been saying. So with the flu, we have flu vaccine. We only test you if you're symptomatic. If the flu vaccine, you know, doesn't quite work 100%, we also have drugs like Campbell flu. So, in effect, you know, vaccine and treatment or vaccine and you rest and stay home until you get over it and, and recover. But that's how we've done it. And, it's, and here, you know, you got, you know, the thing is you got the vaccine and you got treatment. And I know, Doc, you know, that, you know, your governor has been one of those who is promoting the treatment side of the equation to go along with the vaccine strategy. And, of course, now, and, of course, his reward for doing that was to get cut off <laughs> in the name of equity. But this is how we did in the past. And I don't, you know, and, and, I, and I guess you know, it's like your new Surgeon General said, it's time to get over the fear and treat this as a virus that you can live with. Your thoughts? I'm so glad you brought that up because that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Right now, I'm less focused on the data and more focused on treatment because I have been very frustrated. The more people come to me all the time and they're like, you know, me, I, or my aunt, or my uncle, or my neighbor, whoever, um, has COVID, they're, they're having a little bit of trouble breathing, they went to the emergency room and they said, you have two choices. You can go home and do nothing, or you can go into the hospital for five days of remdesivir. And, you know, those are the options. And most doctors are not treating COVID. Most doctors, if you call your primary care doctor, chances are they will say, stay home, 
do nothing until you can't breathe and then go to the ER. That is the standard advice uh, for COVID patients. Most doctors won't even see them in, in, the, in the office. So I believe that, you know, if you, you look at the numbers of people who are dying of COVID, I think that we as a society, as a medical, um, whatever you want to call it, have killed these people. Um, some percentage of them could have survived if we had just treated them early on. I had in February, um, January 2020, I had what I now call not COVID, or no, it was not the flu, right? It, it might have been COVID, I have no idea, but it was not the flu. I, it presented as flu. I went into the doctor's office. They checked, tested me for flu, it was negative, tested me for strep, it was negative. And then he gave me a steroid pack, he gave me antibiotics, which is probably over treating to get antibiotics on day one. But the point is, he took it seriously that I had symptoms. He gave me stuff to head off any secondary infections. And I went home and got better. Doctors are not doing that now. In fact, they're, they're taking those standard treatments that have been given in the past, steroids, um, you know, it's a, you know, maybe give a Z-pack, uh, maybe give some, you know, something to just bolster some immunity or whatever. But all of those things now have been discredited. And even if a doctor tries to prescribe them, some pharmacists are refusing to sell them, even Z-Packs and things like that, um, budesonide, other steroids, and, and a pharmacist will say, oh, that's for COVID, I'm not going to fill that prescription. Our refusal to treat COVID is a scandal, and it has killed people, and I'm completely convinced of that. And I think that this Surgeon General could be a huge blessing because he has, he was in the frontline doctor press conference. Um, in D.C. a while back talking about hydroxychloroquine. So this is not a doctor who buys into the idea that we can't treat COVID, and this may, this could change everything. Well, let me follow up because here's the thing. You make a point, five days in the hospital with the antiviral. And I'm going to say this. So to me, that's an overkill. Not only is it overly expensive. Well, because, because, because remdesivir is a five-day treatment. So they get their, yeah, basically, again, they get their $3,000 charge and their five-day five stay, and that's all they offer you. Yeah, because it seems, I know, like, you know, the, you know, the antibodies that are available, you know, they're fairly, you know, you know to me, that would be an outpatient. Anytime you can treat somebody an outpatient and you got the drugs to do it, you do it. Yeah, you know, I've been in the pharmaceutical. I was in the pharmaceutical 26 years, and you know, the idea of treating, bringing somebody in for intravenous care for five days, when you've got over the, when you've got, you know, outpatient prescriptions available, it's nuts. It's absolute nuts. And and I and again I'll go back to because you know again I'm a, you know I, I love you your governor because unlike most politicians he actually read the science. <laughs> I mean he's one of the few guys who could actually talk to science. And, you know, he was using the, you know, he set up centers for the antibodies. Hey, you know, get those antibodies, you know, get yourself treated, you know, let's not, and let's keep you out of the hospital. And again, and, you know, and I know that, again, you know, I've always been agnostic on the, uh, on the, you know, the parasite drug, the antiparasite drug and the, uh, and the malaria drug that the frontline people promoted. But I think, you know, depending on which study you do, there's enough evidence that if you get stuff early enough, it works. But the other aspect, is, I'm going to kind of put a little bit of a blame, is that when a lot of these studies were done in the United States last year with some of these drugs, they were used on end-stage patients, patients that Correct. they had no business being used on. And some of fact, at least two of those studies had to be retracted. And yet this was the very basis 
of the discrediting of these drugs and the discredit of when the FDA itself messed up as far as I'm concerned. You know, because they weren't even looking for the right patient population in these groups. And it's the same it thing. It seemed like a deliberate. It, it seemed deliberate. It did. It did seem deliberate yeah. an attempt to discredit them. Any treatment. I mean, even the look. At, you mentioned the monoclonal antibodies, which I'm a big fan of, and yeah. I, I praise my governor for setting up these sites all around the the state that make it so easy to just go get the treatment. And you know, they they don't even ask questions. You you walk in there, they'll give you the treatment, no problem, um, no cost. And it takes it doesn't take very long, and people feel better. I've had tons of anecdotal stories. Great thing. But you look at that. As soon as the governor started getting some traction on that, the federal government steps in. President Biden says he's going to increase the supplies, but that HHS is going to take over distribution, and then suddenly Florida's allocation gets cut by 50%. For temporal equity, meaning, you know, you guys can't have it all because somebody else might need some at a different time, it, none of it makes any sense. It's, it's clearly everything is to drive people to the vaccine. They don't want any, but any alternatives to the vaccine. You must get the vaccine. Well, again, I mean, I'm, like I said, again, I've been vaccinated, so I'm not an anti-vaxxer. But I don't believe in mandating the vaccine. And I do think, you know, my theory has always been I'm 67 years old. My wife is, you know, my wife and I, you know, we're in that age. Uh, and, you know, we had no problems doing it. And I had actually really no side effects from the thing, other than a sore arm for a sore arm. And so I've got it, you know, but I, was, I thought to myself, you know, look, I mean, here's the thing. The risk versus benefit. My age, the benefits outweigh the risk. I'm not sure in, that if, I'm a, if I had a 17-year-old grandson, I would sit there and say, yeah, does the risk and benefit match up, especially when if it's a boy and you got myocarditis. You know, it to be considered. And so it's almost like, you know, and so I'm one of these people say, you know, talk to your doctor, figure out which patient population are and whether or not the risk versus benefit. And you got, and then use these other alternatives. This is what good medical practice is. is and I'll be honest with you. It's not hard to understand. You know, Joe Biden and the Democrats saw, once again, DeSantis on the right side of history and they could and they have to basically, well, we can't make him too successful. <laughs> That's all there is to it. I mean, I, you know, I, it, it, to me, it's all politics. It's not about, you know, science. It's been, you know, about politics for a very long time. You know, that's my opinion. But right, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not anti, right, I'm not anti-vaccine either. But people need to to be able to make a decision, and to make a decision, you need all the information, and that includes information about the risks for different age groups, and that also includes um, having, you know, if there are treatments, having those available. So you can say, well, you know, I, I don't want to risk getting it, um, but, you know, if I do get it, here's some things that, that might help. But, but there's a deliberate I've, – I've heard public health officials literally say, if we make these things too available, people might not get vaccinated. And so, you know, the, the getting everybody vaccinated is the top priority, not – Keeping people alive is not, you know. Well, that's a, yeah, that's that's a good point because let's follow up that because here's the other aspect comes in play, is that you know I had a, like a, a, a guest I had a guest on my show, and I've been on his show and I you know George Landry you know Frontier Freedom President and he told me he said I've had the I've had the virus, 
and we got talking about it. He said, you know, you know, I don't see the benefit of the vaccine versus the risk when I've already got immunity to the virus. Right. You know, <laughs> and it bothered me because, you know, this, you know, this is what how we used to treat other pandemics in the past. I mean, I mean, if I'm, you know, you know, like I say, I sold the competitor to Tamiflu uh, when I was in the pharmaceutical business. So, and that was like, uh, God, it was like, so, you know, the, you know, thirty years ago we were talking about this. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, it makes sense to offer the vaccine. Not everybody's going to do it. There are going to be some people who may want to not take the risk. There'll be other people where the risks and benefits don't fit. But if you got the treatment, you can treat these people. And if they got the virus and they survived the virus, they got immunity. <laughs> I mean, this is so. I mean, this is not rocket science. And it's nice to have a surgeon general who seems to understand that. Me to another very interesting point. You know, your definition of anti-vax, vax, anti-vax. You know, I've yet to, you know. You know, your surgeon general has never stated I'm against vaccines. Correct. He just simply said I'm just not going to mandate it. And now he's, he's against mandating right? Yeah. Yep. Now he's class. You know, and, and the word was he, you know, like one headline was anti, you know, DeSantis takes anti-vaxer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was very yeah, common yeah. yesterday um, and, and today. Yes. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're against mandates, then you're anti-vax now. And then the fact that you might, you know, and you and your children might have every vaccine under the sun up until this one, you're still an anti-vaxxer. It doesn't matter. It's you know, it's been redefined like everything yeah. else in the COVID era. Yeah, I mean, it's just like I'm, I'm listening to this, and I'm just like, all right, let's say, and and again, I, I tell you, my favorite story uh, because I we had on the show a school board member in a school district in Virginia, Northern Virginia. The guy's a doctor. And 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 he is and like I guess he was on the doc and he's like Dr. Larry's ophthalmologist. So, so he was a and so we brought him on the show. And he's a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He was a Democrat. And we got talking about the and he said, Tom, I want to get these kids back into the classroom. The test scores are showing negative, you know, you know, that we're losing ground. And he says, we're 20%, and I have, I'm in a school district, 20% minorities. They're losing even more ground. And I said, well, and then we got to him that mass mandate. He said, look, I've read the data from Florida. I've read the data from Texas. I know the mass mandates are nonsense, but here's my dilemma. If I don't vote for mass mandates, the kids don't get into the classroom. Because everybody else on the school board wants mass mandates. What do you do? He knows it's crap. He knows the man, you know, these mass mandates are not beneficial per se. There's no real good data to say they work. But if you're on a school district and you're the only vote that votes against it, or if they're saying to you, you want my, if you want these kids back in the classroom, this is the price, uh, you pay the price, I guess. Uh, well, you know, we and, all, and we all I, paid the price. We all paid the price yeah. last year. The, that was, that was always the, you know, yeah. mask your kids so they can go to school. And now it's now it's you know, mask forever because there there's no end. There's, we we we've allowed we 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 pay we pay the price too much and we need to stop yeah. and we need to stop letting them yeah. compromising um, with with the well, people that just want to to be tyrants. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. I just I went to New York, and basically, in, in a way, it was kind of funny uh, because you had to have a vaccine passport to get everywhere. Uh, so I had to bring my vaccine pat, proof for my vaccination. My wife and I did, and yeah. And plus, I went to the U.S. Open, and you had to get into the U.S. Open. You had to prove that you had a vaccine. But what here was the thing that was that really struck me. You know, everybody wear a mask walking into the restaurant, right? You sit down, you get your first drink, and you don't put you keep the mask on for the rest of the uh, your dinner. <laughs> And it's like I'm saying to myself, you know, what a joke. Everybody, you know, it's like, you know, everybody knows you well. And once they sat down, they took off the mask and they stayed off until they finished their meal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, what, is me. there any logical argument for that? Is there any logical argument for that? Of course yeah. there's not. And everybody knows it. And it's, it's I, I always laugh when I see the people who are so obediently, especially here in Florida where there's really no mandates. You know, that they, they, they very ostentatiously leave the mask on until there's a drink in front of them, and then they can take it off, and then they proceed to, not, to leave it off for the rest of the evening. So I'm like, what are you thinking? You're thinking, like, one minute you're contagious, and because there's a drink in front of you, you're not? What's, what's the yeah. thought process there? Well, I guess unless it's the tequila, maybe they figure the tequila will take care of the blood. <laughs> well, that may be, but that doesn't protect other people, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, it's like, the whole idea is you're protecting convenient. other people. Yeah. yeah. Here's some people I feel bad about because, like, I was at a, a resort, and all of the workers had masks on. And I felt like, you know, I almost felt like telling these people, you can take your mask off. I'm vaccinated. Uh, but, obviously, it's a policy at that whole resort to have the workers do that. But it's like, you know, yeah, I don't know it, it just strikes me as strange. Uh, maybe the last thing I said before, we're going to wrap up real quickly here, but I'll leave this with you. Is I don't know if you heard about the incident at Colomari in New York, the restaurant where you had a yeah, group of people basically harassing. Well, it turns out, because I got this story, because my youngest daughter lives in New York, and she works in the museum system, and she saw this, and, you know, you know had this poor lady get harassed. Well, it turns out that it was Black Lives Matter, because somebody figured out in New York Blacks are twice as likely to be denied interest because they're less likely to be vaccinated. Yep. Uh, I mean, that's like. But why are they? Like, but why are they taking it out on the restaurant owner? You know, this is a this is they should be taking it out on the governor. This is this yeah, policy comes be, from the governor. They should be taking it out on the mayor. But you're and, right. And and to be but, and you know, not to criticize you or anybody else, but you know, we all need to stop participating in this. Stop showing the vaccine card to get entrance to place. We all have to stand up for each other. And we have to say, look, if, if I can't get in this, then if, no, if somebody else is banned from this place, then I'm not going in there either. And we really have to stand together against the people that want to implement these systems that are only going to turn into more surveillance of us once we start showing these apps and everything to walk into somebody, and you have favored people and unfavored people, and we have in-groups and out-groups, you have to stand with the people who are being excluded. It's part of, a, part of being American, really. I'm going to let you stop at that one because we're at the end of the time. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, how does the, web, the website uh, uh, Rational Ground, can you very bravely tell people how to get to the Rational Ground website? Rationalground.com. RationalGround.com. Thank you very much, Jennifer. We're going to have you back on the show. You've been a great guest. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. This is Tom Donaldson saying 
connecting the Donaldson files. And don't forget, it's the Dr. Larry Tom Donaldson Resistance Hour special. Tom Donaldson and Dr. Larry. Dr. Larry, are you there? Uh, Dr. Larry, are you there? All right, uh, Bob, uh, we got Robert Livingston, the former Speaker of the House. We got the Ambassador uh, James Gilmore. We had a little bit of an issue with Dr. Larry, but he'll be with us shortly. Uh, welcome, gentlemen, to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Bob Livingston and uh, Governor or Mr. Ambassador. Uh, it's great to uh, be on the show with you and Tom. Thanks uh, for having yeah. me. Yeah. Likewise with you, Mr. Speaker. Yeah, don't worry. Dr. Larry is somewhere out there in space, uh, in the internet. Uh, but he's. Uh, we're going to try. We're trying to fix his phone system somehow. Or another. It didn't. You know, something popped up. Uh, so uh, that's. Uh, but he. We're in the process of hopefully getting that fixed, and he'll be on shortly. But now that I have the both of you on the show, uh, first of all, Bob, you've been uh, in politics for a long time, and, uh, and were and no, you were you, were you in Congress during the Iran Contra? I mean, not during Iran Contra, but during the Iran hostage. Oh sure, yeah, uh, that happened in what around seventy eight, seventy nine, uh, yeah. and uh, I got elected in seventy seven. Okay, so you were there for that. And Ambassador Gilmore, I know you spent the last couple of years. Uh, what I want you to kind of do is uh, talk about what you did in the Trump era uh, the, for the Trump administration as the ambassador. To kind of brief people what it, you know, you, your job and responsibility. Well, just very quickly, the uh, I was the named the United States ambassador to the OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's like uh, an alternative United Nations. It's located, it's not headquartered in New York, but it's headquartered in Vienna, Austria. And it uh, contains basically 57 countries. It crosses the Atlantic and takes in America and Canada. It also has everybody in Europe, uh, including all the Western allies, all the uh, Central and, and Eastern European allies, Russia, Ukraine, the Baltics, the, uh, the Balkans, Turkey, uh, and even some uh, Central Asian countries. So it's uh, it's a uh, – you can still hear me, can't you? The, there was some crackling. Yeah, uh, I can't hear you. Yeah, so uh, as United States ambassador, uh, you know, I saw my job there is boosting up the allies and making sure that they were uh, confident in American leadership uh, and then making sure that we restrained the Russians because they're pushing all the time, uh, and there is a real serious danger right now of a, of a conflict in Ukraine, which could lead to a major war. 
So there's a lot of issues there, including the promotion of democracy, human rights, which are Western values. And I can tell you, the, the people on your line, that Europe is not quiet and it is not settled. Uh, and American leadership is absolutely essential in order to try to keep the peace. So that's what I was doing. Okay. Dr. Larry, are you available? Okay. Well, well we'll keep trying with Dr. Larry. Uh, I, 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 you mentioned the word Europe being quiet. Uh, I mean, being, I mean, still being active. Uh, I, I want to kind of talk with you, and then I want Bob to your follow-up. You know, it sounded like when Joe Biden went to the in June to the the G seven, the G seven, and uh, yeah, and yeah, everything was hunky dory. Oh yeah. Like, you know, everything's cool. It's no longer Trump. We're all wonderful and, and loving one another and blah, blah, blah. The grown-ups are back in charge. Well, lately, I'm not sure that Europe is getting the idea that the grown-ups truly are in charge. Uh, you know, we have the Afghanistan withdrawal debacle. You have the controversy dealing with the Australia submarine deal. And, and so my question I'm going to throw back to you, Ambassador, is, What's the shape of the alliance right now under this president, as you see it well, presently? I, I think we've taken I think we've taken a big step back. Uh, there was a lot of uh, media talk uh, during the Trump administration about how, uh, you know, the the alliance was coming apart and the alliance wasn't strong. My experience, and I dealt with the Quad, which was the British, the French, the Germans, and the Americans. Every week, I met with them personally. We all understood we were on the same team. We all understood what the big picture was. Everybody understood that the Russians were threatening Europe again, that Putin was not a a satisfied customer. And, uh, you know, things were pretty good. The fact that that Trump kept talking about America first, well, you know, uh, that just meant that we weren't going to subordinate American interests to any other country, including our allies. But it didn't mean we couldn't do business and work with our allies and have allies. That's what strengthens America. Uh, so uh, I thought that during the Trump administration, things were pretty good, actually. I never heard anything particularly negative about the alliance. But I think now, uh, frankly, I mean, I can make a, a case to you about how bad things really are. I think this French thing is serious. Uh, I worked very well with the French ambassador at OSCE. Uh, I don't know how they – first of all, I think that the, the Pacific Alliance they've just put together is a good idea to restrain the Chinese. But I don't understand why they had to kick the, the French along the way. Uh, you know, there are a lot of other serious issues. You know, they extended the New START Treaty. They didn't need to do that, at least not in the way that they did it. Trump was negotiating to try to restrain the Russians. and They just said, oh, no, you can just have your, your treaty again. Uh, he stopped the, the Keystone Pipeline, which weakens us energy-wise. At the same time, he took the Trump sanctions off of the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is going to make Europe more dependent on Russia. So I, I just think that, uh, you know, at the beginning of this administration, Admiral Stravides, who's a big Democrat, said, well, amateur hour is over. Well, I don't think it was ever amateur hour under the Trump administration, but I think that it is now. Uh, so I, I, I'm really rather concerned. I think the Afghanistan, I, I want to let Bob get his two cents in here, but uh, I just wrote an article that was just published on Fox.com that pointed out that the uh, the debacle in Afghanistan is a serious problem. 
because it really warns the China or informs the Chinese and the Russians that if they invade either Taiwan in the Pacific or Ukraine in, in Europe, I think that they're beginning to think maybe they can afford that risk because of the incompetent way that we handled the Afghanistan issue. And I'm worried about it because if one of those two uh, wars erupt and the United States does respond, which I think they will almost have to, then it's game on. And I just don't think we want to be in that kind of position. Uh, so I, I think that Biden, has, the President Biden, has put us in an extremely dangerous situation. And I said so in my article. I think there's a higher danger now of a hot war than there was before. Okay, Bob, your thoughts. Well, I can only hope that uh, and pray that we're going to avoid any hot war, but I can't argue with anything uh, that, uh, uh, Jim, if I can call you that, uh, that, that Jim do. has said. Uh, I, uh, I I think that, unfortunately, this, this whole administration is, has become the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I'd like to think of something they did right, uh, and there are very few things. Uh, uh, Jim pointed out that uh, uh, with the new deal with Australia and buying the nuclear submarines as opposed to the French diesel submarines, uh, that that was probably the right decision. Uh, but they sure didn't handle it diplomatically with the French. And the uh, French, of course, have withdrawn their uh, ambassador right now, and uh, both from here and from Canada. Uh, so it's uh, uh, that's that's an awkward situation with our oldest ally. Uh, and, and, and so you just look around the world, and, and as Jim said, uh, uh, we're faced with a great deal of danger. In fact, we we are far more dangerous in a far more dangerous position today than we were just 10 months ago. Donald Trump yep, yep. had his personality. Yeah, Bob, uh, uh, yeah. I'm going to stop right there, Bob. Hold on a second. We're going to be right back. Uh, uh, because I want to follow up. And I don't want, you know, uh, like I said, we do have to take a quick break here, but I do want to follow up on uh, some of the things you're saying. And hopefully I think we are working on fixing Dr. Larry as well. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year, one in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Napa know how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. I'm back, gentlemen. Okay, you're back, Larry. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, 
let's let Bob finish his thoughts, and then you can jump in and take over your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very happy to uh, to finally uh, be, be able to hear both of you gentlemen. And um, I'd like to start with uh, Bob and, and, and Jim both, but Bob particularly maybe at this point. You know, in every administration, there is generally some expertise in the Congress that uh, is following the foreign affairs of, uh, of the country very carefully. And um, I just... I just uh, don't see. I, maybe I uh, maybe I don't know enough. But do you see any of that kind of um, depth of of uh, perspective and uh, advice that are floating around in the Democrat side of the uh, of Capitol Hill? Well, you cut the equation in half by stressing the Democrat side because certainly there's lots of expertise. Uh, on the Republican side, I know that the problem yeah. is uh, that because of the influence of the of, uh, Odd Squad and uh, the uh, hard left, uh, Bernie Sanders in the Senate and AOC uh, uh, Cortez on, on the in the House and uh, the Speaker uh, aligning with the uh, hard left, uh, frankly, it doesn't matter what the experts on the various committees, the Foreign Relations Committee, the Armed Services Committee, uh, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, it doesn't matter what their expertise uh, happens to be because they are forced to conform uh, to the dictates of, of the hard left uh, to control the whole agenda. Uh, so the answer is no. I don't see much uh, in the way of uh, uh, expertise or uh, within the Democrat Party in, in House or Senate. Uh, certainly the Senate is, is better off than the House is. Uh, but they've been walking in lockstep pretty much uh, since Donald Trump got elected. They hated Donald Trump, uh, and they did everything to undermine him with a heck of a lot of bogus claims, uh, uh, investigations that amounted to nothing, impeachments based on no evidence. And uh, that's just where we are in this state of affairs. It's very unfortunate. Uh, Tom asked me about uh, the uh, international situation, and, of course, Jim was talking about that, and did a good job. But uh, I, I would add that uh, the European uh, community seemed uh, very upset in many respects, uh, certainly in Germany and even in France and some of the other places, with the personality of Donald Trump, they—he—he—he they, he, he was dominant. There wasn't any doubt that he was a leader, and that—and they liked his policies by and large, except that they had to pay up for their defense uh, greater than any previous president had, had demanded. Uh, but they—they uh, 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 they just didn't care for him uh, in terms of uh, his personal approach. Well, a hell of a lot of Americans felt that way uh, back then, too. They didn't like his tweets. They thought he was too strident. Uh, okay, now what have they got? And, and that's, frankly, the question for the Europeans as well. Germany's got an election coming up uh, in a few days. Uh, France just had one. And, uh, frankly, Europe is, is in a quandary because nobody there is a strong leader against Russia and China, 
but uh, now we don't have a strong, we're not exerting strong leadership either, and that's a problem. Jim, do you, do you, what, did you what, what is the uh, impression of uh, Biden in, in, the, in the defense community that you were uh, a part of? Well, of course, uh, when I uh, when uh, President Biden was elected right. uh, and inaugurated, he fired all the Republicans worldwide uh, as ambassadors. Right. So there are about, I think, about 80 vacancies right now worldwide. Now, you know, politics is politics. I've been around it all my life, just like Bob has, so uh, I'm, I'm not personally offended. But there's an awful lot of, of diplomacy that is no longer happening uh, in the world today uh, because they eliminated all the ambassadors. They could have appointed their own ambassadors and replaced people, but they just left them vacant. And uh, that's that's a problem, and that might be part of the problem of their uh, French debacle. might have been part of their problem with their Afghanistan debacle. Uh, this this Afghanistan thing is a very serious problem, uh, not just because we, uh, frankly, it's a stain on the American people. It's a stain. I don't know how you get rid of that stain, uh, frankly. Uh, it shows that the Americans were prepared to get out just to uh, and abandon people who had put their faith and trust in them for a long, long time. So, uh, you know, what do I think? Uh, I think right now that, uh, based on my experience, that the people, the leadership in Europe is always looking to the United States. Now, they can say anything they want to, but my experience is the U.S. is always the big player in the room, always, because we are the largest economy, the largest diplomacy, the largest military, the largest everything. Only we really can stand up to these authoritarian countries around the world, and the people that I've worked with knew it. Now, I never tried to dictate to anybody. I never tried to insult anybody. I never tried to demean anybody. Uh, I treated all of the uh, people, including our adversaries, with respect. But uh, they all, everybody understands the importance of the United States, and I think that President Biden has weakened that dramatically in Afghanistan and raised serious, serious dangers now for us in the world. What are you going to do if you're in Romania or Poland or Hungary or the Baltic countries and the Russians start pushing on you? And they start sending the message that the U.S. eventually will pull out and not support them. What are they supposed to think? And that is extremely dangerous because the world is unstable, and Russia and China do intend to remake the world. The only thing that really keeps the peace is the strength of the United States and the image and credibility of the United States. And I think the president has undermined that great deal. Well, speaking of that, the this uh, General Milley problem is – uh, what you you both of you have uh, military experience. What, what what do you think of that, Bob? Do you want to start? Which one? Well, yeah, I think uh, he needs to resign or he needs to be fired. Uh, he, he last year has been a disaster. The guy, his top priority is his wokeism, and then he goes and presides over uh, the, the fall of Afghanistan, giving up a Bergamo Forest base. Uh, the uh, withdrawal of troops before they get all the civilians out, uh, the abandonment of uh, Americans and all of our friends who were translators and helped us in, the, in 20 years of Afghan war, uh, the bombing of, uh, uh, the droning rather, of an alleged terrorist that they later had to admit was uh, a man and his wife and, and, and seven kids. Uh, it was a murder, uh, and, and he, they, he called it. He personally called that incident uh, a righteous, uh, a righteous attack. Uh, for that alone, he, he ought to be fired. 
but there's no accountability in this administration. I mean, look at this guy down at the southern border, uh, Alejandro, uh, the DHS commissioner. He's been blindly lying about that thing since he got into office. And and, uh, they expect people to uh, just not uh, believe their own eyes when they see what's going on down there with the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people coming over all the time. Uh, No, there is no accountability, and a lot of people need to be fired in this administration. Jim, do you want to get in on that? Well, I think that the General Milley issue is is extremely serious, and I agree with uh, Speaker Livingston. I agree with Bob. Uh, Milley should be fired today, Uh, and uh, and I will tell you why. Certainly, I personally believe this, but I believe that the Americans all believe that the military must be uh, subordinate to civilian authority, must be. We just simply cannot have the military going off and doing what they want to do on their own. That begins to to make a coup thinkable, Uh, and Milley has done that. Uh, by uh, basically uh, going behind uh, the commander-in-chief's back, which is unthinkable. I would never have done anything like that as ambassador. Um, It's unthinkable that he would go behind the back of the commander-in-chief, President Trump, and call uh, another major power, any power, in this case China, and then begin to make policy and talk about what he was going to do if there was some kind of attack. Well, there was never any threat of an attack on China. That was just uh, in the, the fever mind of General Milley. But then he acted on it. He, he made a call to the Chinese and conducted foreign policy uh, secretly behind the back of, of the chain of command. Now, I'm going to say this. If he's permitted to stay even one more minute, he's undermining that principle. He must be fired. And furthermore, the fact that President Biden isn't firing him reflects badly on President Biden. It makes Biden look like that that kind of behavior is A-OK with him. I mean, I'll I'll just ask President Biden, what if General Milley or any other military officer went behind his back, communicated weakness or strength or policy unbeknownst to the commander-in-chief? Now, if if that's okay with President Biden, we got a big problem, and uh, leaving Milley in place indicates that. So this is, listen, if you're going to keep the United States free and safe and away from this idea of of the military uh, conducting policy that it belongs to elected civilians, if you're, you know, he has to go. He has to go now uh, in order to maintain that principle. And I think it reflects badly on the president that he hasn't acted already. Hey, can I follow up? Yeah, I want to follow up on that. I want to drop this to you, Bob. Uh, and I want you, and we may, uh, and and I want you to continue after the next break with you know, when we get to it. But yeah. here's what bothers me: it's not just General Milley, but we had the Speaker of the House involved in this. Now it's been reported that you had former members of the Obama administration, like Liam Panetta, involved in this. And my question to you, Bob, is if you have a Speaker of the House, a person from another party cooperating with this kind of behavior by a, a general. What does that say about the Speaker of the House, and what needs to be done with her? Uh, well, Tom, I, I'd have to say that 
Uh, the speaker uh, is alleged to have done this by Bob Woodbury. This whole this whole incident came out of Bob Woodbury's book. I know for a yeah. fact that there are a number of instances where Bob Edward, uh, Bob uh, Woodward has stretched the truth. And I, I, I'm not going to judge this particular incident on anybody other than Millie. Millie stands for uh, to answer for what he's done. Uh, but uh, uh, until we know all of the facts, I'm, I'm going to withhold on, on the rest of it. Okay. And the reason I, I, I'm up with this, I agree with you with Woodward. You know, he's fast. But... Nancy Pelosi is just to deny that this is deny his reports. And neither has Millie, and neither has anybody else. I mean, nobody sat back and said, "Well, no, that's not true." I mean, I, I guess my question well, would be: is if, if Nancy Pelosi is not denying this, what does that mean? Oh, I heard that said about Donald Trump during all those impeachment things. Right? Didn't deny this. Didn't deny that. But that's not that's not the way we conduct business. I'm I'm just gonna. Hold off okay. and wait and see. Uh, do I agree with Nancy Pelosi uh, on just about anything? No. Uh, but uh, on this particular answer, I think I'll have to wait for the evidence to roll in. Well, you're listening to the Resistance Hour on uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys. Did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. You're listening to the... Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and um, I have a I have a favorite uh, subject right now, <clears throat> not not because it's uh, a good subject, but it's it's uh, the subject is China. I um, I wrote a a column a couple of years ago when uh, Biden was being. Uh, Touted as the uh, as another as a candidate for president, and I named it the Manchurian candidate because um, that was the same time that uh, all this stuff came out came out about his son. Um, and <clears throat> I'm hoping that I'm wrong, but I'm afraid that a lot of the destruction, destructive things that are being uh, advocated and actually implemented uh, in this administration uh, may have their origins in a foreign in a foreign power and uh, I know you guys are much more attuned to some of the uh, realities of this situation than some of us that are not not as uh, much involved but would you both take a shot at that as to what what you think that 
the influence of China on this administration may be, even though indirectly? Well, I, you know, I, let me start on this. First of all, I would uh, concur with uh, one, the one thing Bob has said, and that is you have to have the facts. And uh, you, you can't really comment on uh, that kind of thing without there being some evidence, and I don't think there is no. any. You know, Larry, I just don't think that's the case. But, frankly, the, the president is doing so much damage, uh, you know, he doesn't have to be working on behalf of anybody else. It, the, the, we're, we're, we're dealing now with a situation where the, the country is badly divided, uh, particularly on the basis of race, uh, at a time in which the, the people of the United States were coming together to work together on things without regard to race. Now uh, this administration has adopted a, 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 a race division policy. They're uh, putting forward a, a plan on spending, which is uh, extraordinary. This is, I think it's like $7 trillion totally. And he's just walking over the Republican opposition to that kind of torrent of spending. Uh, the foreign policy of the country, I think, is, is disastrous uh, and dangerous. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a bad situation completely, and it undermines American leadership, which then undermines security and peace in the world. And I know what I'm talking about. I've been listening to this for the last two years and articulating American policy for two years in Vienna. Uh, so I, I think that there's a, a lot of danger here. I, th I don't think I would subscribe to any conspiracy theories uh, in the absence of any kind of evidence. But, frankly, things are bad enough as it is. And, and I agree with that. I, I, but I, I would say that we have a very, very serious problem, perhaps one of the most serious problems since the, the nation was begun, in that the uh, uh, First Amendment calls for freedom of the press. And we don't have freedom of the press because we have a corporate uh, control of the press that uh, is, has taken sides. It's not independent. It's taken sides. It's become an adjunct to the Democrat Party. Uh, when you add up the major TV stations, I mean, uh, uh, enterprises, NBC, CBS, ABC, MSNBC, CNN, uh, and then put that together with social media, virtually all of social media with, with some minor exceptions, uh, they're all become, they be, become uh, a, a, a spokesman, uh, uh, a propaganda arm of the Democrat Party. And as a result, over the last, uh, well, certainly throughout the Trump administration and, and, uh, and particularly in the election, uh, only the Democrat side gets broadcast and everything else gets withheld. I don't know how the election would have turned out, uh, but I suspect that if the Hunter Biden laptop had been given uh, ag fair uh, attention by all of that media and the social media, uh, we might be talking about a different president today. Uh, look, I'm not saying that Donald Trump uh, uh, won the election. Uh, he, the fact is the election's over. And, and Joe Biden's our president, but I don't think his, his, uh, his administration has done very well, and I th as we've all been talking about. And uh, I think that uh, one of the reasons that they, they haven't worried about uh, firing people that should have been fired and holding people accountable is because a large portion of the media and all, virtually all of the social media uh, have been giving them a, a a buy on virtually everything. They haven't held them accountable. 
until we get a free press, this nation is going to continue to slide into a very, very dangerous situation. Well, moving into back into another subject that Jim mentioned earlier, um, Jim, what is what? Do you think that we are going to? I mean, the situation in <clears throat> excuse me in, in Taiwan is it seems to me extremely ripe for a, a hot war, as you, as you put it. Um, hot, speak to that again, will you? Do you a little more detail. Do you do you think that? That, that that's going to happen, or, or how can we avoid it, or is it going to be avoided or not? Well, in the, in the article that I wrote in for uh, for for Fox dot com, I, I pointed out the the risk and the danger as the consequences right. from Afghanistan. But as far as this goes, what we're really seeing right now is this: the authoritarian powers in the world want to remake the world. They're not happy with the success that we've had at democracies. They're not happy with the success of democracy in Taiwan. They're not happy with the success of the Eastern European countries and even the one that's growing, democracy that's growing in Ukraine. If these countries continue to succeed, the people of China and Russia are going to overthrow these authoritarian governments, in my view. And they know that. And so, therefore, they have to whip people up and to destroy these adjacent democracies. Uh, I think there's. I think the Chinese have made it clear that they want to eliminate Taiwan the same way that they're eliminating Hong Kong, right. uh, because liberty cannot exist side by side with their dictatorship. Uh, so they're prepared to do that, but that's not an easy proposition. The, the Taiwanese have indicated they will resist, and uh, the, uh, the I am I'm pleased to say the U.S. Navy is traveling through that area. Uh, the Chinese don't like it, but they can't really do very much about it if we're traveling international waters and we're showing that we're prepared to control that Taiwan Strait. Therefore, the price is very, very high for both the Russians in Ukraine and the, for the Chinese in Taiwan. The price is very high. If, they're, if they think the United States and its allies, all of them, including the Japanese, uh, including uh, you know the Vietnamese, including our allies in the Pacific, the Australians, the, the British, and in Europe, I could go on all day with that. Uh, as long as they think that there's a real serious risk that we will stand up and preserve the democracies and our values, then they will not act. And that ought to be our policy. Our policy ought to be to, to make it clear that we're strong people, that we're going to stand up for our values and for the safety and security of our people. And you can't write off all your friends and, and consign them to a dark age and then expect to survive yourself. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what we have to do. Uh, I believe that as long as it looks like that we're a strong people, the Chinese cannot take that risk, and in the long run we're going to be okay. But if we show weakness, frailty, and ineptitude, uh, then that's, that's uh, an increased danger internationally. But that's what we're showing, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's what we're showing. And I want to follow up with something else that Bob said a few minutes ago that I agree with. The, the, the danger here is really the far left uh, in this country. The, the, they've taken over the Democratic Party. When I, when I was in the Senator Cardin of Maryland Hello. and I couldn't be more – we couldn't be more different. But uh, we worked together in order to try to, to uh, help the interests of the United States and Europe together with uh, Senator Wicker of Mississippi, who's a Republican, who's one of the finest men I've ever met. 
so uh, we we work together, but the far left in in the Democratic Party is in control now, and the far left is in control, as Bob said, of the media. They're they're uh, they they will not allow conservatives to have their soapbox, and that's bad for the people of the United States. Uh, the business community is no help either. I might add. So uh, I, th- I think that we're in a lot of problems here, but uh, but I do believe that if the Republicans can believe in their values, pay attention to what they're supposed to be doing, follow their leadership, that in the end we're, we we should prevail because I think the people still want a free and capitalistic country, not a socialist country. Yeah. And you think we have the we have enough time to make that happen? Well, that, what choice that's do we the have? key. <laughs> <laughs> we well, don't have any choice. Well, go ahead. I was going to say, what's the old saying that was uh, during the Apollo 13? Failure is not an option here. <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah. failure is not We're biding for time. Uh, time is, is everything. We are probably as weak as we've been in, in a very, very long time. Uh and as far as I'm concerned, we've got a year and three months uh, that we got to hold on. If we can keep a, a major war from breaking out, the Republicans are coming back in the House and possibly in the Senate. And I think that's uh, the way things are looking. It's, it's increasingly likely to take over both houses of the Congress. And and then I will feel a lot better about the future of the country. But uh, time time. Uh, works against authoritarian governments. Sooner or later, there, uh, as Maggie Thatcher said, uh, a socialist or communist government runs out of other, other people's money. And right now, President Xi uh, in uh, China has a lot of problems on his hands. Their real estate uh, industry is, is collapsing. He's coming down hard on the corporate world, trying to uh, arrest some of the big corporate moguls that have uh, existed, the billionaires that have uh, come to the fore over the last few years with their uh, their free market economics. Uh, and he's really cracking down. And I think uh, that uh, he's going to be faced with some significant problems uh, inside his own country. Uh, and as Jim said, one way to solve some of those problems is to reach out and start to uh, uh, causing more trouble around the world to try to rally the troops. I don't know what's going to happen, but I just know that we've got to hold on for another year and a half. And if we do, I think we'll be in much better straight shape. Yeah. What do you but think about the, the? What do you think about the solidarity, though, that the Republicans don't seem to have, particularly in the Senate? Oh, they do. They, they, uh, some of these guys think they can uh, deal with the moderates uh, uh, on the Democrat side. Uh, they can't. Uh, but uh, the, the biggest split right now is on the uh, uh, infrastructure bill, the $1 trillion uh, infrastructure bill, where they think that they can, uh, the moderate Republicans think that they got a deal where they can just pass the infrastructure bill, which is probably mostly what we need uh, and, and avoid the $3.5 trillion bill that may be as much as $5 trillion uh, in that other monster that the, the Democrats are pushing. Uh, I happen to think that they're fooling themselves. I think they're wrong. Uh, but, uh, and I've told a couple of them uh, that, but we'll see. Uh, I, it, we, frankly, we don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks with all these bills, but I'll say this. 
we've already done about $5 trillion uh, because of COVID over the last year and a half. Uh, they're adding, they're talking about adding as much as $7 trillion of budget. Do you know what the uh, deficit or the entire debt uh, for the entire country was uh, when I left office in 1999? For 100 or 200 uh, years, it was uh, $5 trillion. Hell, that's, that, they're going to spend that in one bill. It's already $30 uh, trillion today, the aggregate debt. And and these guys have just gone nuts on the Democrat side. And so the Republicans can't play ball with this. They've got to stand strong and just stand up to these people as much as they can and not cave in to this uh, spending that is has already raised inflation to the point that just in the last four months, the price of aluminum has gone up 20%. Well, hold that thought. Oh, I agree. We have to, we I, have to I, take I, a little I, break I here. Uh, You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I, I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow, Jinx. (laughs) Did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, Yeah. so obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and we're talking to two very distinguished uh, gentlemen, um, and uh, Mr. Gilmore and Mr. Livingston. Um, can we change the subject a little bit and talk about the uh, southern border? That's uh, turned into a, a triple threat, not only humanitarian, uh, unspeakable and humanitarian problem, but also a criminal problem, and then lately uh, there's a lot of emphasis on a national security problem. I mean, we got a medical problem with all the COVID that's coming in with these people, and um, it's just a real question of what, what and, and these people are going all over the United States uh, in buses, and uh, it's just it's just absolutely uh, terrible. And, I don't know what any of us can do about it. So, well, uh, you know, look, Larry, my view is this. Uh, President Trump recognized the problem, and he tried to do something about it. Uh, for all the, the difficulties of it and the challenges of it, he was working 
to keep things more or less under control. Uh, President Biden just decided he wanted to throw everything that Donald Trump was going to do away, no matter how good or how bad it was, and uh, he's created a, a terrific chaotic situation. Now, when you follow that after the Afghan chaotic situation, and now this terribly dangerous situation on the southern border, it's a terrible humanitarian situation, but it's, a, it's, it's dangerous for the people of this country. And furthermore, it's, uh, you know, it, it goes against the principle of being able to at least be a country and control your own borders. Uh, and uh, they're, what's going on right now down there is completely out of control. Uh, and, uh, you know, following up along after Afghanistan, it's just, it just continues to show the inability of, of this government to, to do the right thing for the people of the United States. Murder is increasing across all the central cities. Uh, education has now become a propaganda factory. Young African-Americans are being taught that they're oppressed and therefore that they should not have self-confidence. Young white people are being taught that they're oppressors, uh, which makes them guilty and not have self-confidence. Mothers and fathers understand this. They know that this is the wrong thing. Uh, the southern border is bad. I've, I've already explained that the international situation is highly dangerous and has been uh, conducted uh, with great incompetence since uh, since Biden took office. So things, things just aren't good. Things just aren't good. They, the trick is just to make sure, as Larry said, that the media, you get you get the message through so that, you know, people aren't living in a dream world and just continue these policies beyond the next elections. Bob? Well, I can't expand on that. Uh, we don't have any borders on the southern uh, part of the United States. Uh, President Biden, actually, when candidate Biden said he was in favor of open immigration and uh, said that he was going to welcome folks in. And, and they're not only welcoming them in, they're, they've, they're trying to – remember they had, there was a big campaign to abolish ICE? Well, they're trying to defang ICE every single day. Uh, and uh, if, if any, there's, they make up stories and, and, and attack the poor people on the Border Patrol and, and the uh, Immigration Service. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine the morale of those poor guys uh, uh, down there and women who are trying to do a good job and, and are overwhelmed by the lack of support that they're getting from the, the, the administration, the White House in, in, in Washington. Uh, but people are pouring over the borders. I mean, that's it's, it's, we should have solved this problem 20 years ago. We didn't. Uh, but uh, it's always been a regret of mine because it seems to me that the simplest answer was to close the border and, and, and uh, control the people coming in uh, way back then, and we could have done it. Donald Trump did it. He effectively closed the border and, and, and worked with Mexico and Guatemala and uh, various other countries in Latin America. And uh, he had, had reduced immigration to a trickle. And then, as Jim says, uh, Biden comes in and reversed virtually every one of his policies. And look what we've got. It's a disaster. Yeah. 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 I can I, uh, Larry, can I have another point before? Because we've got about 10 minutes left. I want to kind of follow up with both of you gentlemen is this. You know, we're looking at the specter of inflation. Uh, we're looking at a country that's basically spending beyond its means. And we're looking at increasing taxes on the most productive side of the equation. And my question was brought back is we are, the dollar is pretty much, you know, you know the gold, I mean, in a way, it's the gold standard of today. 
you know, the, the, the dollar. And as long, but my question is, there's, do you guys, neither one of you see a danger down the road if we get into an inflationary cycle or we get into a budgetary uh, crisis that the dollar gets under seas and we end up losing the dollar as that mechanism or that, you know, that we have a, an attack on the dollar? Uh, I, I guess I'll start with you, Ambassador. Good. So, well, I think, I, yeah, I mean, I think that look, the the philosophy of the the radicals on the Democratic side, and this is not true of every Democrat. I, I know many that are responsible people. They just happen to have gotten elected in Democratic districts, but but the far left is in charge. The far left is in charge. And, you know, so-called moderate or conservative Democrats uh, bear that responsibility uh, if they're going to allow the, the far left to be in charge of their of their party. The result is this torrent of spending. And you are going to see inflation. You are seeing inflation. Gas is going up. Uh, people are seeing these prices at the grocery store. People in the minority communities are trying to stretch their dollars in order to provide a decent way of life for themselves and their families. And then inflation is going to cut on them, too. Uh, so this is a very serious problem. Uh, the second problem is that they're not going to be able to finance this any other way other than raising taxes. Now, they say that all they're going to do is tax capital. They're going to tax, they're going to tax the productive parts of society, and so, you know, a little people ought not to worry about that. That's sort of their position. Well, the problem is that uh, when you increase taxes on the, on the capitalist system, you put people out of work. Uh, and you increase inflation, and it's going to affect everybody, and it's going to weaken the country. The economy is the country, uh, and this inflationary problem is very serious, and they're in, they don't care. They don't care. I think they think that uh, they can run up a big debt and pay, pay it off on inflationary dollars, and, they, and if people are suffering as a result of inflation, they don't care. And they don't think people will notice. They think that uh, that their policies today will not be connected up with inflation in the future. But I remind you that back in the day, the Gerald Ford days, that the big issue was whip inflation. Now people notice inflation, and they're going to notice it again if these policies continue on under this president. Well, I'd, I'd say that they're noticing it right now. A year and a half ago, you could buy a gallon of gas in Mississippi for a dollar forty. Uh, now it's about three dollars and a half. Uh, it, it, inflation, as I mentioned, the uh, the, uh, the price of all goods, uh, foodstuffs in the in the in the grocery store uh, are astronomically high, and, and they've have gone up. Uh, everybody's feeling inflation right now. Uh, the budget crisis uh, is a crisis now. The, the Democrats don't care, uh, and when you add the, what they're trying to do. Uh, not only with the budget and, uh, and causing inflation, uh, they're adding in uh, all of these other things like uh, uh, like changing the election laws to enhance uh, their permanent majority. That's what they want to do. They, the immigration thing is to increase the number of Democrat votes. They want to make sure that they get in control uh, of the government and never lose it again. And that's a frightening proposition, particularly when the people that are uh, – Motivating their their efforts are the, on the far left. Uh, they want the people on the far left want to turn this into a socialistic economy, and socialism doesn't work. It simply has never worked in in the history of the world anywhere in any country ever, uh, and it's dangerous. 
And when, when, basically what it comes down to is socialism tells one person, well, you've got money and you've got to share it and we're going to take your money and give it to somebody else. Well, that, that is just uh, – you, you can't do that without force, uh, without uh, bringing in the troops, without putting people in prison. And when that happens, they get mistreated in prison. Uh, and you become the Soviet Union, you become China, each of which have uh, lost tens, hundreds of millions of people. Uh, and uh, Cuba is, is a, a virtual communist prison today. Venezuela is an absolute basket case disaster prison uh, for their people. Uh, and that's what these people seem to want for the future of America. I don't. And I think every rational American ought to do everything they can to oppose it. And the only way that they really can do it legally right now is to plan on the next election and vote those people out. I'd like to introduce another uh, angle here. Uh, would uh, I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to ask your uh, your uh, colleague uh, any questions that you uh, would like to have him answer. And uh, Bob, do you want to? Do you are you up for that? <laughs> Well, Jim and I seem to agree on everything, so I, yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure I have any questions. Uh, yeah, I do, Governor. Uh, who's going to be the next governor of Virginia? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, the, the jury's out on that. Uh, Glenn Youngkin has a, a real chance to win this election. Uh, he's uh, he's equipped to compete on an equal basis or better than equal basis with his Democratic opponent. Uh, he doesn't have the name ID that Terry McAuliffe has got, but I think this, uh, I think that Young can, can win this election, and I'll tell you why, because I think the environment is right for change. I think the people of Virginia, uh, you know, we, they, they, we've developed this, this suburb, uh, particularly the Washington suburbs, that tend to vote Democratic, and that has to shift. But I believe it is shifting because I think mothers and fathers aren't happy with the education, public education system right now under the, the woke administration. I think people are, frankly, I think they can't wash the stain of Afghanistan off their hands. They can't get it off. Uh, I think that uh, people recognize that it's time for a change, and Terry McAuliffe is not representing change. He's representing the same thing. The unhappiness that people have right now with Governor Northam, I think that if uh, they elect Terry McAuliffe, it's getting more of the same. Uh, so I believe the environment is right for change, and therefore I think uh, Glenn Youngkin might be the, the right guy in the right time in the right place, and I'm for him, I can tell you that. Me too. Jim, would you like to take a shot? Well, but, you know, maybe, maybe Bob can can tell me what he thinks we have to do to make common – are there any decent Democrats left in the House of the Senate? That we can uh, we can talk to about these catastrophic uh, policies that are going on, and ask them to to please uh, do the right thing. I, I think that uh, Senator Manchin and Senator Sikma of uh, of Arizona are examples of that. But I watched my own Senator Tim Kaine today. He was supremely confident that when the chips were down, and that they wanted to put in these these kinds of socialist uh, socialist approaches, that Senator Manchin would be there for him. I found that to be a very disheartening interview. And so I guess my question to Bob Livingston is, what can we do to make an appeal to reasonable Democrats to not go along with this stuff? Well, you win that, uh, that governor's race for uh, Mr. Yunkin, uh and, uh, 
uh, that'll be a big step in the right direction because that's going to flag the American people that, uh, hey, things are changing. Uh, it's We've already had some uh, elections down on the Texas border where uh, predominantly Democrat areas went uh, Republican. And I think that you're going to see that uh, from uh, place to place. Uh, but uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi retires one way or another. She retires at the end of this t- uh, congressional term in a year and a half. And uh, that's that that I think it's time for her to do that. She sh- she has been a strong speaker. Uh, unfortunately, Boy. her policies have been wrong, but she has been. A, I mean, she is she is a tough cookie. Uh, when she came in the first time and uh, when she was uh, speaker uh, the first time, she uh, fired John uh, Jim, John Zingle, who was the, arguably one of the best chairmen, Republican or Democrat, and one of the toughest chairmen. Uh, who was uh, on the Commerce Justice Committee. And uh, when she took him out, everybody said, Ooh, well, uh, she just took out the strongest guy, Democrat in the House, uh, and that showed her strength. Well, she dominates the agenda. And frankly, there's not anything that we can do uh, in the House of Representatives that's going to change anything for another year and a half. But uh, things will change uh, then, and, and that's what we got to work toward. How about how about reasonable uh, Democrats? Uh, well, uh, Jim mentioned uh, Ben Cardin. I worked with Ben Cardin, and I, I think that you do have a lot of very very rational, reasonable Democrats. And in fact, I got elected in an overwhelmingly Democrat, Democrat district, so I got nothing against Democrats. I have something against the hard left, and uh, they've got to be able to assert themselves if. If they don't stand up and, and, and put an end to this agenda that they're trying to push through right now, uh, virtually, there won't be any moderate Democrats left. They're all going to be replaced. Well, you know, when you see a guy like Dick Durbin and um, uh, who's the other guy, the um, other guy from Chicago, um, anyway, they just – you 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 took you, well Ben Carton's another one. I mean they get on the they get on an interview on television and they they just bark the line. It's it's amazing. Well, they are accountable well, for it. Uh, I must tell you that uh, no, no matter who they are, if they stick with this program and they don't and they don't go against it, they are responsible for it. As Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and we need to be saying that you can't allow some of these Congress people who are Democrats to just say, well, that's, you know, I, I'm a nice person and I'm a good person. But uh, so, you know, vote for me. They're enablers. They're, they are what, uh, you know, Lenin used to call fellow travelers. And uh, they, they have to they are making it possible for this kind of misconduct to go on. So we have to make a change everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got I got one more question for both of you. Is it the next time around? Is it going to be Trump or uh, DeSanto? Oh, Livingston knows the answer to that question. I was going to yield to you. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. A lot of his people say that he's going to run, but uh, I, I'm not convinced. I mean, we we have a good bench. Uh, there are a lot of other people that will run. I'm, I personally supported the, the president. I, I think it was outrageous what they did to him from the day he took office to the day he left. In fact, after the day he left, 
uh, with all of their crummy uh, investigations that were based on absolutely nothing. Uh, but uh, Trump will make up his own mind. If he chooses to run, I think he will be the nominee. And I think yeah. it depends on what he decides. Yeah. Well, let me I say this. Uh, I, I counted the other day, and not counting Trump, I count 16 Republicans that want to run for president. <laughs> but, but, but to me, uh, I'm not hearing anybody with a real vision for America's future. Uh, and, you know, we need to go back and listen to the Ronald Reagan speeches. He articulated a vision for the future that was based upon uh, American greatness and American liberty. Uh, and uh, we need to do that. We're going to have to offer a candidate that looks ahead, doesn't look back. It's it's okay to, to knock Biden's administration in the far left because we ought to, and that's what we've done for the last hour. But in the end, we have to offer a vision for the people of the United States that they can rally to, and I'm confident that we'll offer a candidate that will do that. Well, I agree, well, and I think that's, well, that's what's needed. But uh, if the president starts rehashing the last election, uh, we could be in trouble. So we need to look forward. Well, gentlemen, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. And uh, we always say at the end, God bless America, because we sure need it. <laughs>